2: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
3: History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me. And apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless Googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Persia. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash, Persia. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the History of Persia. Episode 12, Iranian Religion. In the last episode's return to the narrative, I covered the final decade of Cyrus the Great's life as the King of Kings, what he did in the eastern half of his empire, what we know about his administrative activities, and finally, his death in a battle on the northern frontier. This episode begins the first of the stories that will run sort of parallel to the main narrative. In this case, that's the story of religion in ancient Iran. Of course, religious elements will appear in the main narrative alongside the political story, but I'll also be tracking religious developments separately in their own episodes every now and then. To that end, let's wind the clock back right back to the beginning of the show in the same time period as episode 2, because we're going to go back to talking about the Indo-Europeans and their evolution into the Iranians, including the Medes, Persians, and many of the tribes I talked about last time. I won't go through the whole evolution of the Indo-Europeans again, but just to summarize. The Indo-Europeans were people living on the steppe between the Black and Caspian Seas, who spoke a language that, when they started migrating, began to evolve into the languages of Europe, Iran, and South Asia. By about 2000 BCE, all of the groups that would eventually develop the European branch of the language family had moved out of the steppe, and the group that remained there was migrating east. That's when their language started to evolve into what we call Proto-Indo-Iranian. Around 1500 BCE, another group broke off of that one and migrated into India, where their language evolved into Sanskrit and other northern Indian languages. And finally, in the subsequent 800 years, the remaining group's languages developed into what we refer to as the Iranian language family. Those that stayed on the steppe remained semi-nomadic tribes like the Scythians and Saka. Those that moved southward became the Iranian peoples that we've encountered in the narrative, like the Persians. Between the linguistic similarities and comparing the religions and mythologies of the cultures that speak Indo-European languages, scholars have tried to reconstruct an idea of what that steppe religion sometime around 5,000 years ago looked like. More specifically, we have an idea of what some of the gods they worshipped were like. Because everything about this is so tenuous and theoretical, I don't want to dwell on it, but it is really interesting, so I'll point out some of the ones that scholars are most confident about. First and foremost is the Sky Father, reconstructed in the Proto-Indo-European language as something like Deus Pater. That name appears all over the place, especially in European mythologies, most prominently in Greece and Rome. In Greece, Deus Pater became Zeus Pater, and more commonly just Zeus. In Italy, particularly around Rome, he became Jupiter, which is now pronounced more often as Jupiter. However, the Sky Father did not retain significance in all of the Indo-European cultures. In Germanic and Norse myths, the Sky Father is linguistically associated with Tyr, a relatively minor god. More minor still is the obscure Dias Peter, mentioned only a few times in the Indian Rig Veda. And no similarly named god is identifiable in any Iranian tradition, but elements of the Sky Father are visible in the stories of other gods that have been subsumed under different names, most obviously Ahura Mazda. More on him in a bit. Three of the other best-attested Proto-Indo-European gods all have to do with the sky as well. They are gods of the Dawn the sun, and the moon. The dawn goddess is reconstructed as Hausos. In Greece, that became Eos. In Rome, that became Aurora. In Indian traditions, that became Usas. And in Anglo-Saxon Germanic mythology, it became Eostre, which is the ultimate root for the name of the Christian holiday Easter, just to name a few appearances. The sun was something like Sehul. In Greek, that became Helios. Roman and Germanic Sol, Indian Suvra, and Iranian Hivara Keshaita. A common feature across many of those disparate Indo-European cultures was the sun as an eye or watchman for the sky father, a feature also seen somewhat in the Iranian tradition. The moon deity's name is harder to reconstruct. One suggested option is Menat, becoming Mani in Norse mythology, Meno in Lithuania, and also being the root of the word ma for moon in some ancient Iranian languages. Though similar names do not appear across too many Indo-European cultures, similar deities with similar traits do appear all across the board, giving us a pretty good baseline for a moon god as well. There are many more, but these are just some of the best attested or most familiar concepts to a lot of people. Others included a pair of twin deities associated with horses, gods of thunder and water, and more abstract concepts like nature spirits, fate and destiny as woven thread, and three divine old women serving some kind of cosmic purpose, which varied a lot between different places. What you might be noticing, if you're familiar with some of the mythological traditions I'm talking about, is just how minor a lot of these deities were if we just trace the names from Proto-Indo-European to the descendant languages. However, if you start tracing aspects of different myths that are shared across all of these cultures, you find them appearing and being assimilated into more prominent figures across different mythologies. Elements of the Skyfather appear more prominently in Hindu and Norse stories under the gods of Indra and Odin, respectively. In the Greco-Roman tradition, elements of linguistically associated with the Dawn Goddess, can be found in Aphrodite slash Venus, as well as Athena slash Minerva. These shifts and borrowings are generally thought to be the result of the original Indo-European pantheon merging and mixing with other local gods over the course of different waves of migration. And this most likely happened multiple times when one wave of Indo-Europeans had mixed with a non-Indo-European group, and then another wave of migration that had also mixed with some other traditions migrated into that first area too. Over time, the layering of many traditions, one atop the next, resulted in the complex and diverse mythologies and religious traditions that many of us are now familiar with. Of course, all of that is on top of the regular and unpredictable changes that religions go through to adapt to cultural and environment shifts over time anyway. The myths of steppe nomads had to adapt to suit living in forests and coastlines and river basins as they migrated. So with that as our baseline, we should probably follow the Proto-Indo-Iranians, who began migrating eastward to settle around the Caspian Sea just around 2500 BCE. They are recognized as a distinct group and language by about 2000. It's actually much easier to identify some of the elements of the early Indo-Iranians than it is to do with some of the wider Indo-European world. The smaller sample size actually makes things easier because it means there are fewer outside influences to separate from the original tradition. But this is also the culture that generated the oldest Indo-European religious texts of any sort. These were the Rig Veda, the Avesta, and to a much lesser extent, the inscriptions of the Mitanni kingdom. The Rig Veda is a collection of Hindu hymns and prayers first written down in Sanskrit around 1000 BC but studying the language and the vocabulary of the verses suggests that most of it was composed orally around 1300 BC, and the actual concepts go back as far as 1700. This part about the concepts and early composition is backed up by the Mitanni, a kingdom from eastern Anatolia around 1500 BC, where the ruling class apparently spoke an Indo-Iranian language and practiced Indo-Iranian customs, Including worshipping many of the same gods and using many of the same prayers and hymns found in the Rigveda. The Avesta will be the primary source of religious information for most of the narrative going forward. Its history is a lot less clear than that of the Rigveda. As it exists today, the Avesta was only gathered and composed sometime around the 4th century CE, almost 800 years after the life of Cyrus the Great, and twice as long after the Rigveda achieved its current form. However, a linguistic analysis of the language in the Avesta, called Avestan, places the oldest sections of the text around 1300 BC, roughly contemporaneous with the Rig Veda. I'll get into the weeds of the Avesta in a second, but first I want to narrow the religious and mythological traditions that spawned the Avesta and the Rig Veda from those Indo-European ones that we talked about a minute ago. It's easier than the Indo-Europeans, but still hard to develop a clear image of what the pantheon of the Indo-Iranians looked like. Of course, we have that earlier starting point, but we also know that there was quite a bit of change as they migrated, and the material culture around them doesn't yield much in the way of specifics. We can't just incorporate all of the gods mentioned in both texts, because, as we can see from the divergent languages, they were probably from different tribal groups within the larger Indo-Iranian culture, likely with slightly different pantheons, which would have been further separated by outside influences once the two were migrating. One possible source of information is to look at the mythology of the Scythians, who are generally believed to have retained a lot of the original Aaronic Steppe mythology, but most of our information there is filtered through Greek accounts. Complicating everything further is the fact that the Indians, the Iranians, and the Scythians were all neighbors over the subsequent centuries, and it can be hard to tell where the traits that they originally shared end and the ones that they shared back to one another begin. The fact that I keep calling these people Indo-Iranians is a bit counterintuitive, and mostly to avoid getting back into the debacle around the word Aryan that I talked about back during episode 2 and the introduction. However, we actually know basically what they would have called themselves. A member of their community was called Aryaman, and if you were a priest among the Aryaman, you would be called something along the lines of an Athurawan. The act or objects of worship by those Athorawan would have been called yajna, or something along those lines. Deities worshipped by the Aryaman and their Athorawan priests had some of the same recognizable traits that listeners might be more familiar with from Western mythologies. The Skyfather figure had a divine mother or queenly figure paired with him, and also gods for storms, the sun, water, and other natural phenomena there was also a lot more emphasis on gods associated with social order. These deities were divided into two probably overlapping categories, the Ashuras and the Devas. Those two classifications became a lot more codified as the Vedic and Avestan traditions separated, but at this point they likely had a deal of overlap, as some gods labeled Deva by one group are apparently Ahuras in the other group. Keep in mind that when I give the names for these earliest forms of later deities, they're just the best guesses based on linguistic similarities between the Vedic and Iranian names for different beings. So, they had Mithra, a god associated first with oath-keeping but also later with warfare, Aruwat, a deity associated with perfection and order, Tepati, a goddess associated with the sun or fire who was extremely prominent or rose to prominence later to become one of the chief deities of the Scythians. Veretra, a god associated in some way with war or conflict. Vivawant, a sun god, and that god's son Yima, Manu was associated with warfare and inflamed passions, and Aji was a dragon or a serpent associated with evil deeds. One deity, likely honored by at least some of the Aryaman, but harder to identify in the Vedic, Scythian, or Mitanni texts, is Mazda, or better known as Ahura Mazda, the god who became the chief deity of the Iranian Zoroastrian tradition. It's possible that Mazda could be identified with a couple of minor Vedic figures, but while they are mentioned very infrequently, Ahura Mazda became the supreme god of the Iranian tradition. By piecing things together from all of these sources, we can actually get an idea of some of the more abstract concepts, too, like rituals and sacred objects. For instance, it is clear that fire and water were both considered sacred, as both are personified or venerated in both holy texts. And the title pot appears to honor certain beings as child of the waters. There was also a cosmic concept of truth, or order, called Arsha. We can also deduce that they used a plant called soma or hauma that is supposed to have an effect on everything from hunger to sexual stimulation to spiritual connection and healing. All sorts of things have been suggested as the scientific identification for homa. Special attention is given to intoxicating plants that might have given rise to the belief in supernatural effects. Everything from mushrooms to cannabis to lotus to sugarcane has been put forth, But the most popular suggestion is a plant called ephedra, which is still used by some Parsi Zoroastrians in northwest India even now. Ephedra grows all across the right region of the steppe and Iran, and its extract, called ephedrine, can be used as a stimulant or performance enhancer, stimulating brain activity, increasing heart rate and blood pressure, and expanding air passages. It can be brewed into teas or ground up to elicit less extreme versions of the same effects. So it's a good candidate, but there's still no definitive proof that this is the historical Homa. So that's some of the religion that can be traced back to the Aryaman, the Indo-Iranians, as we're able to scrape it together piecemeal from a variety of different sources. Right around 1500 BC, religious beliefs for this group started to change. Probably more so for those that stayed on the steppe than those that started migrating towards India. And I say this because many of the gods venerated by the Rigveda ended up condemned by the Avesta. Historically, it's not that odd for the gods of rivals or gods that had lost favor to become condemned. But it would be a little more strange for people to start worshipping demons. That idea makes for very compelling fiction, but not a lot of sense in reality. So odds are, the Iranian culture around the Avesta started condemning gods that were still praised by their cousins that had left. A few spirits, still revered by the Iranians, did become despised in India, but of the gods I've listed so far, it seems like a kind of one-way affair. What definitely wasn't one-sided, though, was what happened with the words Asura or Ahura and Deva. In the Indian Vedic tradition, Asuras became the category of destructive and power-hungry gods, while Deva became more benevolent gods in the cosmic order of things. It's almost a perfect reverse in the Avesta. Uhuras are good spirits and devas are evil. Over time, deva essentially came to mean demon in Iranian languages. For many years, it was suggested that this religious split was the impetus for the waves of migration out of the Indo-Iranian steppe, taking the Vedic traditions with them. I don't want to completely roll this out, because the timeline fits almost too nicely, but religious conflict as the only reason for these migrations doesn't have a lot of support from modern scholars. That brings us to another theory that was once popular, but is now mostly dismissed. That one man was responsible for all of the religious change among the Iranians. That man being a priest on the steppe, one of those Athurawan. Thurawan. This man was named Zarathustra. Though history remembers him somewhat better by the Greek transliteration Zoroaster, prophet and founder of the ancient religion of Zoroastrianism. It was once thought that the religious reforms of Zoroaster might have been the source of the split between Indian and Iranian religion, but it is now more widely believed that many of the differences were already developing and that, if anything, Zoroaster sharpened and codified a few of them. Also, I am planning to use Zoroaster rather than Zarathustra. Though both are easy enough to pronounce, and Zarathustra is actually the version used by the Avesta, Zoroaster is a little bit more recognizable and common. Also, Zoroastrianism is the most common name for the religion by a long shot in English sources, and I think that it makes more sense to use the name for the prophet that corresponds for the name of the religion. I'm not super committed one way or the other here, so if I get significant feedback asking me to use Zarathustra instead, I'll probably consider switching. I should also say for the sake of accuracy that the more correct name for the religion itself is Mazda Yasna, because they worship Ahura Mazda, not Zoroaster. But Zoroastrianism is so much more commonly used that it's much better for me to use that speaking to a general audience than to get everything confused by throwing in multiple versions at the same time. So I'll bring this up again as we talk about Zoroastrianism. Mazda Yasna, they worship Ahura Mazda, not Zoroaster, but I'm going to keep calling it Zoroastrianism for the sake of simplicity. And now that I'm reaching this part of the episode, I'm also getting to the first time that I really have to talk about a religion that's still practiced today. I've mentioned a few details about Judaism and Christianity already, and I've generally said the word Islam, but this is the first time that I really have to get into the theology and tenets of a faith. There are over a 100,000 Zoroastrians in the world today, with the largest populations still in northern India and Iran, though there are significant diasporas outside of there as well, especially in North America. I'm taking what I hope won't be too controversial a stance here, and saying that I am going to approach all religions as part of history, and discuss them largely the same way
4: that I would discuss any other part of ancient culture. I'll do my best to separate current ap- I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app, and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started.
3: For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's
4: lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com
3: today. Today, opinions and beliefs from actual historic evidence and present all religions as the ancient sources present them. That goes for Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and anything else I run into along the way. This is the one explicit warning I'm going to give. This analysis will not always, or even frequently in some cases, line up with modern doctrine and popular belief. One thing that becomes very clear when studying religious history is that beliefs change to suit new situations and are easily altered by outside influences. I'm not trying to pick on Zoroastrians here, it's just that this one particular religion is more relevant to the podcast than others. Everyone else is going to get the same treatment in due course, I promise you. So what exactly were Zoroaster's reforms? Well, and I feel like I'm saying this a lot, it's difficult to say. We don't know what was reform and what was pre-existing religion first codified by his hymns, but it is generally believed that he was the composer of a set of 17 hymns called the Gathas. The style is consistent enough to lead some scholars to feel comfortable saying that they were composed by one author rather than a school of authors as is sometimes understood by things like the Rig Veda or in Greek literature to Homer or lots of the books of the Bible. The Gothas were composed in an ancient Avestan language, more specifically, Old Avestan. Avestan is an Iranian language with more in common to the languages spoken in eastern Iran and central Asia than the western dialects like Persian. Presumably, when the Gothas were first composed, Avestan was a regular spoken language used by people in conversation, but over a few generations the spoken variant of the language changed, becoming what we call Young Avestan, and the old Avestan variant was only retained in the Gathas and some other religious texts. Now, all the Avestan writing, both old and young, is Zoroastrian and religious in nature, collectively called the Avesta, and tradition holds that all of it was the work of Zoroaster. That makes very little sense, as it was written essentially in different languages, at distinctly different styles. It would be like attributing the Canterbury Tales, written by Chaucer in Middle English, and Othello, written by Shakespeare in Modern English, to the same author. In fact, even within the text written in Old Avestan, only the Gathas are generally thought to be the work of Zoroaster himself, while the other Old Avestan work is probably the product of his followers. The 17 Gathas are all poems addressed to a supreme creator deity of the Zoroastrian religion, Ahura Mazda, the Wise Lord who, according to the Avesta, revealed to Zoroaster that he was the supreme deity of the universe and that members of his community were being led astray, worshipping lesser deities, or worse still, the evil and corrupting spirits called Deva. In modern compilations of the Avesta, the Gathas are divided into chapters and combined with the seven-chapter piece called the Yasna Heptagaiti to form the larger text called the Yasna. The 72 chapters of the Yasna thus form the core of the Zoroastrian liturgy. The third Old Avestan composition is the Vesperad, which acts as a supplement to the Yasna, and is again slightly younger than either of the two main components. After this, all the surviving texts of the Avesta were composed in Younger Avestan. I say surviving because tradition holds that there was once, particularly during Achaemenid times, a much larger corpus of Zoroastrian holy texts, housed at Darius' capital at Persepolis, and lost when the city was sacked by Alexander and the Macedonians. How much of the loss of holy texts can be attributed directly to Alexander is probably significantly less than Zoroastrian tradition holds, But just that texts were lost in the intervening 700 years when the rulers of Persia were not also worshippers of Ahura Mazda is very much believable. There are even fragments of partially lost texts included in the Avesta. To determine if those Younger Avestan texts are relevant to us, we should probably establish when Zoroaster did his preaching and had his revelation, which was all written in Old Avestan, so we would need an amount of time for that to change before we got anything in Younger Avestan. In the ancient world, Zoroaster was already famous. Some classical Greeks believed he was an impossibly ancient eastern sage who lived millennia before their own time placing Zoroaster's life sometime around 6,000 BCE. Most scholars believe this to be incorrect, and mostly about the mythology of Zoroaster among the Greeks. 6,000 BCE would predate any known writing by about 3,000 years, and the linguistic understanding of the Avestan language by about 5,000 years. Zoroastrian traditions from the time of the Sassanid Persian Empire around 300 CE held that Zoroaster lived around the 6th century BC, right around the time that Cyrus the Great was alive. This is based on a couple of things, largely the presence of names in the Avesta being shared with members of the extended Achaemenid family, and possibly Hellenistic Greek traditions about Greek philosophers like Pythagoras also roughly contemporary with Cyrus, studying alongside Zoroaster. Scholars also tend to reject this dating, but some people both in and out of the Zoroastrian community will still quote 600 BC occasionally. The most commonly accepted dating for Zoroaster that fits with the cultural and linguistic evidence, legends of where he was born and lived, and the timeline for his teachings to be heard in Greece during the classical period suggests that it was sometime in the mid-2nd millennium BC, probably around 1300. That would place most of the younger Avestan text sometime after 1000 CE, up to and including the Achaemenid period. There are several collections in this category, but most significant to us is the Yashts, a series of hymns addressed to various divinities. The first is dedicated to Ahura Mazda, but all the others are prayers to other beings, and it's hymns like this that get us into the weeds of Zoroastrian beliefs about God, or gods. Modern Zoroastrians are, for the most part, entirely monotheistic. Ahura Mazda is the one and only God. Some of those that I've met and spoken to tell me absolutely, 100% adamant, Ahura Mazda is and has always been understood as an abstract being with no physical representation, anthropomorphic or otherwise. Both of those beliefs are apparently relatively recent, monotheism and Zoroastrianism appears to have fluctuated across time, and there are many pieces of art that non-Zoroastrian scholars understand to be images of Ahura Mazda. I'll weigh in on those as we actually start seeing them in the narrative, though. The Gathas make it clear that Zoroaster was giving Ahura Mazda absolute preeminence. There are references to other divine beings and Ahura's but Ahura Mazda is absolutely the focus. The Yashts, however, especially because of their later composition, remind us that there were other beings still being venerated and important to the followers of Zoroaster's doctrine. As Zoroastrianism spread among the Iranians, many of the Yazadas referenced in the Avesta were worshipped independently as part of a larger polytheistic pantheon, probably somewhat similar in practice to the pantheon of Vedic Hinduism in India. Everything is made less clear by a combination of poor record-keeping about religion in ancient Iran generally, and a very nice coat of Zoroastrian whitewash on history that was applied during the more theocratic years of the Sassanid Empire. The structure of the Avesta as we know it was developed then, and the oldest manuscript is only from the 1300s CE, so getting details from 2500 years ago is pretty tricky business. I used the word yazada a minute ago, talking about the different deities venerated in the yashts. First things first, I'll be using the word yazada a lot, because it's the Zoroastrian name for these beings. You may also notice that I'm beating around the words god, deity, and worship when I talk about them. That's because in modern Zoroastrianism, they are most definitely not gods. The Yazadas are more closely identified with the angels of Abrahamic religions, but were very likely more prominent and more directly culted historically. In the Gathas, Yazada is used as a term for anything worthy of worship, including Ahura Mazda, and it was only later, possibly even in post Achaemenid times, that Yazada came to refer to explicitly lower beings. In the Gothas, it's not always clear that the names of the Yazadas refer to the actual personified beings or to abstract concepts represented by the Yazada. By the time the Yashs were composed, they were definitely considered their own entities, venerated independently of Ahura Mazda, though. That said, the most likely explanation is that they were always considered to be separate beings, and the Gothas are just really vague. Within the heading of Yazada, there are some further subcategories. There are the Ahuras, aside from Ahura Mazda, the word Ahura is usually translated as something along the lines of Lord. Ahura Mazda, first and foremost god of Zoroastrianism, is therefore the wise lord. The Gathas use Ahura much like they use Yazada, that is to say, very vaguely, and it's probable that they were just a general word for divinities when Zoroaster was writing, and only took on specific definitions later. Two beings are regularly called Ahura in the Younger Avesta, beside Ahura Mazda himself. Those are Mithra and Epamnapat. Mithra is the second most significant figure in the Zoroastrian cosmology, and probably the second most worshipped historically. He is a guardian of truth, oaths, agriculture, herds, and of water, but also associated with the sun and light, which in the ancient world usually meant fire. Mithra is also described as one of the three judges that presides over the Chinvat Bridge, which is crossed by souls entering the afterlife. Apamnapat is another figure associated with water, literally the child of the waters, who ensured that water was distributed to all people and social order was maintained. Unlike Mithra, though, Apamnepot's role diminished significantly over time. Ohura is also applied sporadically to two other Yazadas, The first is Ashi, who, like many of the other Yazada, appears to be an abstract concept in the Gathas related to the important and philosophical idea of Asha, or truth. But in younger Avestan, Ashi is identified as a Yazada associated with good fortune and victory, and she is described as Mithra's charioteer. The second is Anahita, or more accurately, Aredvi-Sura-Anahita, She was associated with a more abstract idea of water in the yashts, and may have originally been a component of ashi. It wouldn't be until much later in Achaemenid history that worship and veneration of Anahita really took off as its own independent movement. The final six entities associated with the word Ahura are also the final subset of ancient Zoroastrian divinities, which may or may not be considered part of the Yazadas. These are the six Amesha Spenta, There are seven if you include Ahura Mazda. They are the six divine sparks that are considered to be part of the greater godhead of Ahura Mazda. In both the Gathas and modern Zoroastrianism, it is pretty clear that they are abstract and are just branches of Ahura Mazda's being, but in the intervening millennia, they were sometimes treated as independent beings like the Yazada, an idea which probably originated during or just after the Achaemenid period. These are Vohumana, good purpose, Asha, the truth, Khashathravaira, possibly associated with the sky and later with metal, Spenta Armaiti, natural harmony, Havatat, perfection, and Emeritat, immortality. You can probably tell from the way I defined them that they are fairly abstract, but the general idea is that these six concepts form a basis for creation. And I feel obliged because I used modern Zoroastrianism as a point of reference a few times to say that this is still a very history-oriented take on the Yazada. It's drawn largely from actual Avestan texts and historians' interpretations of what those meant 3,000 years ago, not necessarily the same ideas as they are treated by practitioners today. Like I said before, all of this is history first and anything else second. So where do I come down on the Yazadas myself? Are they angels, gods, saints? Well, I think the best answer is that they are, and were historically, Yazadas. Trying to assign them labels to make sense of them in English and Western Abrahamic theological traditions is a fool's errand. We don't have enough literature from 1300 BC to actually say what Zoroaster himself thought of them, and the scant literature that follows presents them as something kind of unique. Uhura Mazda is absolutely the center of attention. But these other beings are worshipped in a similar way, just a bit less, and are clearly treated as Uhura Mazda's lessers and creations. That doesn't really line up with any of our regular understandings of words like god or gods or angels— If Zoroastrianism had gone extinct centuries ago and we studied this only as history, we'd probably translate Yazada as God, lowercase g, because it's still with us and it's often translated as angel, but frankly I think it's best not to translate it. The Yazadas were treated differently at different times and have been revered in different ways. The important thing to understand is that they are, within Zoroastrianism, praiseworthy beings, but less so than Ahura Mazda himself. This last bit is going to be a breakdown of the actual philosophy and theology, the beliefs expressed by early Zoroastrianism. For the most part, a lot of this is still upheld today. Around 1300 BCE, Zoroaster received his revelation from Ahura Mazda that Ahura Mazda was the sole creator of the universe, and all things originated with him, and that he was the most deserving of worship out of the entire pantheon worshipped by the Iranians. It took some time, but Zoroaster got some converts, Eventually, the doctrine began to spread. Part of this revelation was also that the universe had seven sacred, pure components. Soil, stone, plants, animals, water, fire, and humanity. Soil and stone are often lumped together as earth. As all of these things were sacred, rituals developed when handling these elements so as not to corrupt them, especially in regard to the disposal of waste and consumption as food. Notable examples include shunning burial and using natural decomposition when a person died on an elevated platform to keep the body from desecrating the earth, and no cremation or disposal in water to keep those pure as well. The idea of salt water as corrupted was very popular, and traditions of never intentionally extinguishing a fire developed. The ultimate goal of all of this existence is asha, the truth, that honesty is the pinnacle of morality and the most righteous concept— this truth is best expressed through the maxim humata, hukta, huvarshta, three Avestan words meaning good thoughts, good words, good deeds. If you think about good, you can speak good, and if you do these things, your actions will be good. Asha is opposed by druge, the lie, which is essentially the opposite in every way, dishonest, corrupting, and evil. And within this framework of pure and impure truth and lies, Asha and Druj Every part of the creation, from the Yazada on down through humanity and everything else, has the choice between the two. Free will is fundamentally part of the way things work in Ahura Mazda's creation. The problem, as conceived in the Gathas, is the idea of Engra Mainyu. In the Gathas, like so many other spirits in Zoroastrianism, Engra Mainyu is an abstract idea, that idea being evil thoughts. In younger Avestan works, it is made more explicit that Engramenu is a being, an antagonistic opposite to Ahura Mazda, or possibly a direct part of Ahura Mazda like the Amesha Spenta that represents the corrupting parts of creation. The former view was commonly held for many centuries, both in scholarship and doctrine, but the latter has gained more prominence in the last couple hundred years, and because these things go in cycles, some secular scholarship is now looping back around to a more dualist way of interpreting things. In either case, Angramenu became a force that corrupts, leading humans and spirits alike down the wrong path. Essentially, this corrupting spirit, when combined with our own free will, is the root of evil and destruction in the universe. The spirits corrupted by Engramenu are those called the Deva. In the Gothas, Zoroaster called the Deva false gods not to be worshipped or revered, and it seems this understanding of the Deva lasted into the Achaemenid period, but over time, the Deva were treated as corrupting influences of their own, essentially becoming Zoroastrian demons. Those are just the absolute bare-bones basics of Zoroastrian theology. Ahura Mazda is the prime god and the creator of the universe. All things good tie into Asha, the truth, and evil comes from Druj, the lie, championed by the corrupting spirit of Angra Every sentient thing, human Yazada, etc., has the choice between those options, and of course everything in practice exists in a fairly gray area. There is so much more to say, and I'll be coming back to religion and Zoroastrianism as we go. I think it's safe for me to say that you can look forward to the next episode focused specifically on religion to come out after I finish with the reign of Cambyses. So, speaking of Cambyses, what does this tell us about the religious beliefs of Cyrus and his sons, the Tayspid kings of the early Persian Empire? Not really a thing. Zoroastrianism, or at least its ideas and concepts, seems to have reached the Persians, and would be championed by later kings like Darius and Xerxes, but we haven't got a shred of real evidence to tell us about the religion of their royal predecessors. It's easy to learn about Zoroastrianism and assume that it is what Cyrus believed, but we shouldn't forget that alongside the codified, reformed religion of Zoroaster, there also seems to have been Iranian tribes worshipping the Yazada and even Ahura Mazda separately as the gods of a truly polytheistic Iranian pantheon it's entirely possible that Cyrus and his family fell into that camp instead. For what it's worth, I think they probably were some sort of early Zoroastrian, or at least Mazda-centric religion. Darius bragged a lot about reforms, but religious wasn't really one of the prominent categories, so it seems reasonable to think that religious changes weren't that big of an issue. I could be totally wrong, there are scholars that agree with me and plenty of others that don't, but Zoroastrian tradition has certainly claimed Cyrus as one of their own. And with that, I think it's time to wrap this up. Next time will be the long belated episode on kingship, and then after that, it's back to the narrative to see what Cyrus's children did with the empire they inherited. If you're looking for more information, maps, the Achaemenid family tree, what sources I used to research all of this stuff, that can all be found on the website, historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. New episodes appear there and wherever else you get your favorite podcasts. I'm extremely grateful to everybody who's been sharing on social media and reviewing on iTunes. The show is growing really quickly, and that's very exciting to me. If you want to share yourself or just follow on social media, uh, Twitter is History of Persia, and Facebook and the new Instagram account are History of Persia Podcast. Thank you again, everybody, for listening to the History of Persia.